Cho, author of Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirit. And I'm Clarabel Ayrtega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings. And this is Write or Die. Yay! Beep, boop, beep. <laughs> okay, well then. Sorry, if I'm... Okay, I'm going to put a caveat at the beginning of this episode to say if I sound all over the place, it's because I am. Because mm. I literally just spent the last, like four days moving into a new apartment without movers exciting it's across the hall though it's across the hall (laughs) yeah but at the same time like i my body my whole body (laughs) in a good way in a good way it's a good ache um but yeah my brain is just like what what's happening (laughs) like how how much more ikea furniture will i put together that's that's fair (laughs) <laughs> well how how are you doing Clarabelle? i'm all right i'm i'm on deadline which i feel like i'm always on deadline so i, I should just Such not that should just be the default mm-hmm. um so i'm pretty tired um mm-hmm. but uh i'm okay i my book is due next week oh I'm my re- goodness yeah i know i know i'm really excited because i really love this book so much and i feel like it's turning out so good um, but I'm on like the very final like climax of the book, so I I'm like it's hard for me to focus on anything else aside from the book right now. Like I'm very like just in that world and just very much thinking about the the just the book all the time. Uh-huh. Um, so so yeah, it's been a lot. This morning I was like working on it, and then for no reason started watching The Real World New Orleans because I can't focus. <laughs> And then I jump back into it. So it's been a day, but I'm okay. Um, we're going to talk that's about good. something that's been all over the internet lately, which is a parasocial uh, relationships. <laughs> um, that was such a good transition, Clarabelle. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, you guys will deal with it. But um, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I wanted to talk about this because I feel like it's something that affects anyone who has a platform but specifically for ride or die i thought it was important to acknowledge it because we get a lot of people coming up to us like i feel like we're friends like like um like we like i know you because like you guys talk in my ear every week um Mm -hmm. and because you and i are friends if you have somebody else listening it just kind of feels like we're pulling them into our conversation and our friendship and i think there's nothing wrong with that or with that feeling with the understanding that like you no one who's listening to this podcast with the exception of our actual friends really truly knows us do you know what I mean like they know what we talk about on the podcast but there's also a boundary there which is like we still are technically strangers and I think it's really important for people who have a platform to acknowledge that because a lot of times that feeling gets exploited and then when there's a a power imbalance that can get really icky if the person in power is like a jerk or someone who's Mm -hmm. willing to take advantage of the people who consume their content so i just wanted to talk about it because i feel like uh authors nowadays are having to deal with that in a way that they've never had to deal with it before (laughs) because we're so online um, and especially people who have other stuff like us, like with podcasts and stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, I, I just, what are your thoughts on it? What, what have your experiences been with that? Have you ever had someone sort of like be weird with you or have you ever <laughs> felt like, oh my God, I really know this person and then had to sort of like check yourself? 
yeah well okay so first for people who might not know what a parasocial relationship is um the like psychology definition of it is a one-sided relationship where one person extends emotional energy interest time um and the other person or persona is actually unaware of the other person's existence because one side of it is someone who has a bigger platform. So mm-hmm. usually celebrities, organizations, um, and then people who have bigger platforms, you know, like through a podcast or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I want to say that I completely understand the feeling. Like mm-hmm. if anyone is listening to Write or Die and is like, first of all, I love that people feel like it's a chat between friends mm-hmm. For, because a it is Clarabel and I are friends like um, like Clarabel just said and B we want you guys to feel comfortable listening to us we don't want this to sound like a formal lecture about publishing and author career like we first of all we couldn't I don't think we'd be able to do a podcast like that we're so all over the place to begin with Um, And second of all, um, some of our favorite podcasts are done in a slightly more conversational way. And I've definitely felt that about like people who are are hosts of my favorite podcasts. Like people say this a lot about um, Karen and Georgia, the hosts of My Favorite Murder, that it's like it feels like we're all best friends. And Karen and Georgia even themselves will say on their podcast, like you're all our best friends. And every time they say it, I like. I feel a glow in my chest. I'm like, yes, (laughs) we're all best friends. But at the same time, on the flip side, Karen and George have had to say like, hey, don't like, you know, don't like come up to us at at an event and like try to like touch us and stuff like that. Um, Because they are people who who need their own space. And I think that that's really important to kind of understand. Um, This stuff happens a lot Uh, to authors partly because we put our hearts in our stories in our books and so a lot of times when we're talking about our books we're talking about really personal things about ourselves Um, and I think it it goes an extra level for marginalized authors for BIPOC authors queer authors you know um, authors with neurodivergence and stuff like that saying I wrote this character who's a reflection of me and people like me and this is how I experienced X, Y, Z marginalization. Um, this is a piece of me that I'm giving to you, my audience, my readers. And so because we're giving pieces of ourselves to you guys, it feels like you know us, mm. but you only know this piece of us, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I think that I, I want to continue doing that. I, every author I know wants to continue doing that. But if you see me on the street, um, it is a little bit disconcerting, especially because of like who I am in my head, like internally in my head and like my anxiety and all that stuff that if someone just comes up to me and they just start talking to me as if I should know who they are, it's it's really disconcerting for me. And I don't mean to like act off putting because of it, but I'm trying to I'm trying to absorb what is happening and try to figure out what is happening. That's what's happening with me. And so, unfortunately, what could be the result of that is me making you feel like I don't like you. And Mm. then I will spiral because that's not what I meant to do, but I can tell that's what it's coming across as. And it becomes this horrible cycle, right? Um, So it is a thing that, like, 
I think every friend I have who is an author thinks about a lot because it's like, I want you to be happy as my readers and I want you to have a comfortable experience if it's the first time you're interacting with me or if you're seeing me at a book event. I want you to be happy with your experience too. But I also need my space as well as like a human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that it's all in the approach too, right? Because like if, if somebody does recognize you like at a bookstore or somewhere where you're not like at an event, like I, for me personally, it's okay if someone's like, Hey, I, I love your books. Like, like I love your podcast or whatever. I'm just like, Hey, thanks. Like, I feel like that's okay. But like, I think it depends how the person is approaching you. I think where it gets icky is when people are overly familiar, um, get overly familiar in a way that's like uncomfortable or like snarky or are expecting things from you, mm-hmm. um, as if you're in a relationship or a friendship that is much more serious than a content creator and their audience. Um, I think that's when it gets really weird and uncomfortable for me personally. Um, I, I personally, and I think everyone will vary, you know, that's another Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Like everybody's going to feel differently about this. I don't mind if somebody sees me and is like, Hey, uh, I love your book. I love your podcast, whatever, whatever. I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also reserve the right to like, be like, I don't, want to take pictures with somebody or yeah anything like that too because you don't always want to do stuff like that that being said I'm not Beyonce so I'm not having people <laughs> stop me and ask to take pictures with me and that is not something that I'm experiencing or going through but um just like I know in my head like at book events and stuff like that things have happened where people have wanted to take pictures when I'm working Mm-hmm. When I used to work at book shows yeah. and I used to feel really uncomfortable about it when it was people who I didn't recognize from the community mm-hmm. because it's like, I don't know you and I don't know what you're doing with this picture, especially if it's like a guy. Um, so everybody has oh, like their yeah. different like feelings or like um, sort of uh, boundaries that they're willing to have. And I think it gets really hard for us, especially as authors who are readers who have admired a lot of the people who are now our colleagues yeah like going from like just being a reader and like a fan of someone to like suddenly being like oh you're on a panel with someone you still have to realize that that doesn't make you bffs like you're still at best like acquaintances and colleagues and you have to be respectful of people and their boundaries and like the fact that you don't actually really know them you know this happens yeah. a lot on Twitter where people will see a friend of mine joking with me in a certain way and then they will try to like be like snarky and weird towards me. And that always makes me feel very strange because it's like I don't know you in that way. And I think it's hard because they don't know that I'm best friends with the people who interact with me in that way online. Right. Like they have no idea. Maybe they think that everyone who is one of my followers talks to me that way. Mm -hmm. So it can be hard to know those boundaries too. So it's really difficult. And like, it's very difficult to navigate. It's very difficult to navigate. But I think that what's important for everyone to, to keep in mind is that like a person whose content you consume and who you're a fan of don't, owe you any more of themselves than the thing that you are already consuming right um so so you can't think like oh because i bought this person's thing their book or whatever now this means that we are friends like i'm entitled to a friendship with this person because it's literally impossible for that for for 
anyone who's in the public eye to be friends with every single person who is following them, who admires them, who looks up to them. It's, you can't do it, you know? Um, and, and, and that can be overwhelming to have that feeling of like, oh yeah, we're friends. And, and I see this a lot also when people are like complaining about people who unfollow them on social media when they're just simply social media mutuals. It's like, guys, you got to chill. <laughs> like, like it's not that serious. And I think, I think parasocial relationships like are really devious in that way and they they play into little interactions that we don't realize that they're playing into because yeah maybe for you that follow from that person meant a lot but maybe for them they're just needing to curate curate their space and it's nothing personal against you but that's not a friendship you Mm -hmm. know following someone on twitter is not a friendship it's following someone on twitter that's all it is yeah no, I agree. And and I also think that, you know, it's it's the context of the interaction, too, because if you want to get a photo with your favorite author and you're at their book event and you're at their signing line, that's normal to mm-hmm. ask for a photo with mm-hmm. someone when you've been standing in their signing line and you're waiting to get them to sign your book and to talk to them. And most authors, I mean, every author I know think would would expect that question and would be fine with that question. Um and so but if it's like someone is like walking down the street carrying a bunch of groceries and you happen to recognize them as your favorite author and you try to stop them and say can I take a photo with you and they're like I have like thousand bags of groceries in my arms and they're allowed to say not right now (laughs) you know so it is it's the context of the situation too and and I'm saying this because like with the knowledge that I've actually accidentally made a faux pas before. Um, I was at a book event when I very, very first joined the community. I saw my favorite author. They were not on a panel. They were just walking across the showroom with their husband or, you know, their partner. And, and I had like, I had never seen them in person before. And I got super excited and I asked to take a photo with them. But then people saw me stopping them and asking them and then people just started lining up to take photos with them when they were all they were doing was trying to walk across the show floor. And in that moment, I was like, oh, my goodness, me. I triggered something like I I imposed upon. (laughs) Yeah, I really did. I felt like I fucked up. I imposed upon what is their personal time. You know, they they were just trying to get from point A to point B. And now they and now they were being polite and they were taking photos with everyone. But like, what if they didn't want to do it? And what Mm. if they, you know, had somewhere to be? And what if whatever? Like, I didn't know what the situation was. I I just knew that I wanted a photo with this person because I loved them. And I felt really, really bad. And I don't think I've ever done it since just because I've come to realize that, you know, we have certain times where like an author needs to not have to be on (laughs) yeah um especially at these shows that last days you know like if you have days of events and you have panels every day you want every once in a while to just be like hey I just want to go to the backstage area and just sit down and put my feet up I'm so tired yeah they're exhausting those those things and being on Mm -hmm. all the time is really hard and you can't hide because Mm -hmm. you know yeah I saw I saw I saw like this, um, it's a similar type of story, but I was just, I was witnessing the conversation and I don't know everything that happened, but I do know that there was 
an author who's super duper famous, like way more famous than me or any of my friends. And I guess they were at like BookCon or ALA or so. It had to be like one where a lot of fans were at. So I, I'm going to say BookCon. And they were stopped by a, a group of, of fans. And the fans like asked for their autograph and to take photos with them. And their friend who was also a famous author was like, actually, she can't right now. She's really busy. And like ushered her friend away. And they... And then those people were like, how dare she not stop and take a photo with us? We're the reason she has what she has. And they posted about it on a public social media forum. Mm. And it got really bad to the point where the friend who was with them had to say, listen, you don't know what happened to her that day. I do because I'm her friend and I was with her and I was protecting her and I will take the flack if I have to. But you should, you're not allowed to get mad at her yeah, for that. People really need to stop assuming that they know all of the context about stuff like on social media and off because you don't always know what's going on with somebody. Um, and like this, this happened once with another author too where they didn't feel comfortable giving hugs during oh, a yeah. signing and people mm-hmm. got really pissed off about it and it's like i understand readers are the reason why we're able to have a career absolutely i would never mm-hmm. take that away from them and i appreciate every single reader that i have but authors are also allowed to draw boundaries for their own safety for their own comfort um at the end of the day, like the only thing that we owe our readers are the books that we write. Everything else is bonus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And absolutely, I want to be able to sign books for authors and I mean for readers and take pictures with them and doing all of those things. But I also want to be able to draw boundaries when I feel personally uncomfortable because while most readers are fantastic, there are people who overstep their bounds and people who think that because you interact with them, you suddenly owe them something or they'll harass you until you follow them or they'll, you know, email you personal things about them constantly um, Mm -hmm. that are uncomfortable for you to read. Um, There are a lot of things that go wrong behind the scenes that you readers don't see um and that could be really traumatizing for authors like sending stuff to our home address when we did not make that available to you oh my goodness which has happened to friends of mine before all -hmm. of those things happen because we feel this familiarity with people and I think what you said was absolutely true like when somebody reads your book it's such a big part of you that you do feel like you know some somebody in in an intimate way right Mm -hmm. because you're Mm -hmm. reading this thing like being an author takes tons of vulnerability and there are a lot of authors like I talk very candidly about my mental health about so many of the things that I go through because I know that it helps the people that follow me I want to be honest about the things that I go through because I feel like there I'm not helping anybody by like pretending that shit is easy for someone like me who has like clinical depression and all of this stuff I'm very open with it and and I'm glad to be open with it but I think that it does get hard because when you are so open, people suddenly feel like I know this person, like they are my close friend and I'm able to sort of like trauma dump on them too. Mm -hmm. If I want to like, like step into their DMs and like talk about anything or like ask really personal questions of them. Um, And it's just, it's, it's difficult because I never want 
anybody who is a reader of mine or a follower of mine to feel like they make me uncomfortable mm-hmm. just by being there for me or like by supporting me. That's not the case. Um, what it is, is like feeling overly familiar, feeling like we're best friends when we're not like, I, I feel mean saying that even, <laughs> which is not good. You know, well, I, I, think- <laughs> I shouldn't feel mean saying that strangers aren't my best friend, but I know people yeah. are going to, people will be hurt by those kinds of statements sometimes from the people that they really love. But if I pretend otherwise, then it's me taking advantage of my listeners and my readers. And I, I, that's worse in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the thing is, is that I do feel affection. I feel so much affection for everyone who takes the time out of their life to listen to us talking about these things on our podcast who takes the time to read my books and and especially if you're taking the time to tell me about how you enjoyed any content I created I have so much affection for those people but I also don't know you and it would be disingenuous of me to be like you're immediately my friend because yeah that that would that would be me just like using the word friend to kind of just try to pull you in to my sphere and be like try to buy your loyalty or whatever by like just throwing this concept around um, that I know makes people feel happy. I'd rather be honest and be like, I am appreciative of you. I have, you know, I have affection for you, like I said, which I feel fine saying. Um, I, you know, and, and I, I love being hearing from my readers and from our listeners and I love it when people come up to me and say I read your books and I really like them or I listen to Red or Die and I like it because of this reason or that reason I I love it when people come up to me and say that that's never the problem it's it's what Clarabelle is describing for sure and it's when people assume that they know enough about us to demand certain things from us it has happened to and there's parts of me that I I'm still grappling with parts of my identity that I'm still grappling with. So I just don't talk about it as much. And I do want to be able to share as much of myself with everyone as possible. But there's some things that I'm just like, I'm still figuring it out. So I don't feel like I have the words to be able to speak to it genuinely. Mm. But people think, but people assume they know everything about me because I'm public, because Mm -hmm. I have this public platform. And because they assume they know everything about me, they assume that they can demand certain things about me. Yep. And and sometimes, I'm going to be honest, it they look like they're stepping in shit because they think they know everything and they are assuming the wrong things. Um, there was a very recent thing where people assumed that I'm neurotypical. And they were like, how dare she not support the neurodivergent community? And I am... I'm neurodivergent. I have ADHD. Like, and to be someone to demand that I talk about that, you know, talk about that subject when it's something that is very personal to me, or treat you like you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, when it comes it, to that. It was really, really. It, it was so triggering. Clarabelle knows. It was so mm-hmm. triggering. I ha- I had a spiral. It triggered my anxiety, which is very closely tied to my ADHD diagnosis. It triggered a lot of really negative things for me. I'm fine. I have a great personal support system. My, my very close friends and family who know this about all the stuff about me were all there for me. So I don't want anyone to worry about me or anything like that. But these people assumed that they know, knew everything about me and they assumed that they could demand certain things from me. And 
they really did hurt me and I'm a person and I have the things that I have to deal with and I just don't think we should be doing that to people no matter what their platform is no matter how they got their platform absolutely and 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 I think that a lot of times unless you talk loudly about a certain thing people make assumptions about you so again like just because I don't have something in my bios just because I don't talk about something constantly doesn't mean that that's not part of who I am, which is why it's so dangerous to assume that you know everything about people. There are people who know stuff about interviews that I did that I forgot about myself, (laughs) okay? That does not mean that you know me better than I do. Like, yeah, you might have memorized my book more than I could because I forgot it the moment that I handed it in, (laughs) but I have to live with myself every single day, and I think it becomes really harmful We've seen so many examples of people feeling entitled to or thinking they know someone and ha- and that forcing people to out themselves, uh, mm-hmm. out their queerness before they were ready to or, or they didn't even want to, you know. Um, I think that there's this like, you know, readers have so much more access to authors than ever before. And that can be a really great thing because it's so much fun to interact with people, have them ask questions. Um talk to people about like hey would you like just today like I talked on my Instagram about like I'm probably going to do a tour of like all of the places and witchlings that were inspired by like real life places when we get closer to the book releasing and like would you guys want to see that and everybody was like yeah that would be so cool it's awesome that I get to do that like I'm so happy that I get to do that and that people care and like are answering me but then there's like a dark side also Mm -hmm. where people are like yeah but like what about your parents? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Show me the inside of your of your childhood bedroom. Who are you dating? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or shipping me and Kat together, which is like so inappropriate. <laughs> Listen, Claire, Clarabelle and I are, are platonks soulmates. All yes, right? platonks. We're, totally platonks. We, we're totally platonks, <laughs> but we, you can call us soulmates, but we're like, you know, Jen and Jack from Dawson's Creek soulmates. Which is the best relationship the in best that relationship. entire show. For real. <laughs> Healthiest, best, <laughs> cutest. <laughs> okay. Jen deserved oh. better. So uh, going to be mad about that for life. Anyway, uh, this is not Dawson's Creek podcast Dawson's Creek yeah but if you want more about us talk about Dawson's Creek go listen to Nina Moreno's episode because we talked about it literally the entire time (laughs) that was a great one um anyway yeah so I know I I feel like this whole pre-chat kind of sounded like us being like stay away from us (laughs) we just to reiterate yes please tell us that you like the books we write yes please tell us that you listen to and like write or die um you totally do that. And, and you can still approach us. It's just that if for some reason either Clarabelle or I are like, I'm so sorry, like I don't have time right now or we look like we might be in a bad mood. It's because we're human. It's not you. So please don't be upset or sad. It's def- It's almost definitely not you as long as you came up and, and approached us respectfully. Yeah. But we're human and, and sometimes we need space. Yeah, that totally happens. I see so many times where people are like, this person was so mean at a conference and like I'll know the person personally and they're like the sweetest sweet baby angel that you've ever met in your life but that person could have been having a bad day. Maybe yeah. they just found something out terrible about their book. That happened to me at a conference once. I literally spiraled and had a horrible, horrible mental health breakdown because mm-hmm. I found out stuff about my book like during the conference and I was a mess. I was... Mm-hmm. A disaster and like 
I don't know what interactions I had with people during that conference. They could have very well thought I was like the meanest person in the world. Meanwhile, I was like trying not to cry the entire time. And you just never know what people are, are going through. We are still human and we want to be able to have healthy interactions with our readers and with our listeners and with our audience. But you have to know that there is that boundary there with anyone, not just us. This is anyone who you are a fan of or who you um, follow and sort of like consume their content. You don't actually know that person unless they're Mm -hmm. your real life friend. And that's something that's just always really important for you to keep in mind. Because if you always have that in the back of your mind, it will stop you from like being overly familiar and doing something weird and it will stop you from like judging somebody in a way that's like super unfair and harsh and just like remembering like they're a person who I have appreciation for but I don't actually know them and that's 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 all we're trying to say (laughs) today's guest is Anna Mariano Anna grew up in Houston, Texas with an older brother and a younger brother, but tragically, no sisters. She graduated from Rice University with a degree in English and earned her MFA in creative writing with an emphasis in writing for children from the new school in New York. She has taught creative writing and high school English and works as a writing tutor. Anna likes reading, knitting, playing full contact Quidditch, and translating English song lyrics into Spanish and vice versa. Her favorite baked goods are the kind that don't fly away before you eat them. Anna, welcome to Ride or Die. Hi, Hello. thanks for having me. Of course. Really excited, to, excited to, 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 to have you, you on. I always love when that bio crops up because it's the the one that's very tailored to love sugar magic and talks about sisters and baked goods and I'm always <laughs> like, oh yeah oh nice yeah I I it's it's honestly the first one that comes up when someone, yeah. someone googles you <laughs> for sure um <laughs> but yeah so we're we're really excited to have you on the podcast um we always like authors who've kind of written in different like mediums age categories and stuff oh, we always like that's something that Clarabelle and I are really very interested in ourselves. So we love talking with people who've done it yeah, like you, uh, but do you want to kind of just give us a little overview of how you fell in love with writing, how you got involved in publishing and um, you know, we know that you had a series before your most recent book. So you can just talk about those as well or your most recent book, whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So my like, I'm trying to sum that up in my head, like journey into publishing kind of yeah. thing where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I always I, I always want to like tell my story and then I want to give a million caveats. Like not everyone has to do it this way. You don't have to. But with that caveat that not everyone has to do it that way. I have been writing like since I was three years old. Um I used to, before I learned how to actually write real letters, I would just scribble fake letters on like pieces of paper and bring them to my mom and tell her that like, look, I wrote a story. It's about a cat, whatever. And so cute. (laughs) um, Yeah, I was just like, I was like pretty, pretty set from a young age um, because I really loved books. Um, My mom was very nice to like read to me a lot and I would force her to read to me for hours and hours after she was like tired and done with it. Um, cause I was a little tiny tyrant and 
yeah, so I, I just kind of like was always writing. And then, you know, in kindergarten, I was like using the coloring station to cut and tape together my own little books. And then in third or fourth grade, I read um, The School Story by Andrew Clements and realized that publishing existed. And in middle school, my best friend and I challenged each other to write novels. And I think she bought me a book called like How to Get an Agent. And, you know, in eighth grade, I was drafting my query letters for this fantasy novel that was uh, a whole journey. (laughs) (laughs) Then um, so and then like in high school and college, I got a little self-conscious and I came up with my practical backup plan of being a teacher. And I kind of stopped necessarily telling people that like, I was definitely going to be a writer, but I still had it in the back of my mind and I still had it as like my goal. And I even thought about applying for like a fine arts college or like a college where I knew I could major in creative writing. And my parents sort of talked me out of it with that. Like, why don't you go somewhere a little more uh, where your options are more open, where you have, you're not like pigeonholing yourself so early. Mm -hmm. And also, why don't you stay in state? And then later, if you want to go to New York and study writing, you can. They were probably thinking I would never do that. Um, (laughs) They thought wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because luckily for me, actually, I in college, even though the the place I went for my undergrad didn't have a creative writing major, um, they did have visiting or like resident writers in residence or something Mm. where people who had just graduated from their MFA at the University of Houston would come in and teach creative writing um, at Rice. And so I met uh, Court Voorhees, who is a young adult author of a couple different books. Um, um, Come on. The Brothers Torres is the first one and he has more. And, And that was the first like YA writer I had pretty much ever met. Uh, We didn't have, like, school visits, or, I mean, I never got school visits. I don't know. So knowing someone who was doing it was like, oh, I can actually do that. I would love to do that. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had another uh, writer-in-residence for my second two years who kind of, like, talked me through the process of applying for MFAs. And, yeah, I wrote in all my MFA admissions letters that I hated literary fiction. So (laughs) not surprisingly, I only got into one. (laughs) And it was the one for writing for children. <laughs> I love that. You were like, I hate everything you stand for. Let me in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean. It's fine. I, I like mean, they should know. Going yeah. In. Also, like, fuck that. Like, they shouldn't only focus on literary fiction anyway. So. Yeah. And in college, I had already started bumping heads. Not with the, like, young, recent MFA grad people who were writing young adults them, young adult novels themselves but like with some of the other uh, faculty I was butting heads on like is it okay to write a story about robots entering a high school and making out with the students or should we be <laughs> you know expanding our <laughs> that sounds awesome <laughs> someday I'll go back to that story I was really proud of it uh, so anyway uh, so that's how I got to the new school, which has the specific writing for children track. And as soon as I entered that, I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely like the place I wanted to be. My family had been making fun of me for a couple years at, or for several years at that point for like, wow, you were reading like big chapter books when you were 
seven, and now you're still reading those same chapter books for children. Uh, you never grew up from there. And I was like, yeah, that's because adults are boring and terrible. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I did. I really loved being able to kind of hang out with people whose their whole goal was to write middle grade and young adult, and some mm. also some picture book uh, stuff coming up. Because, like, I just think that there's a little more focus on the audience and a little more focus on the, like, telling the story in uh, an entertaining way and in a fun way and a little less focus on proving that you're the best writer. Um, maybe that's rude to literary fiction. Sorry, literary fiction. But, yeah, <laughs> that's how I, I got into Kidlet. I like that. Um, so before we get to, like, how, like, your agent and all that stuff I'm sure we don't talk about um MFAs that often I mean we have talked about them but for you personally did do you did you feel it was worth it like what did you get from your time um do doing an MFA and would you like recommend it to people who are interested in it yeah I think that's a really tricky question because it's super circumstantial um mm. I have had a lot of privilege with my parents being able to help me and for me, it was absolutely worth it because I also got to know Cake Literary because of their connection with the new school. Mm. Um, so I met Danielle and Sona at the one of the alumni mixers. And Cake Literary is how I got my first book deal. Like, And my whole entire first series was written with Cake Literary. So for me, I'm like, oh, it was 100% worth it. Like, You can directly track, I got into this MFA, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't have my whole first book series. But I know that's not everyone's experience. Right. Um, and it, you know, if you don't have support and you have to be taking out loans, I think that it becomes a much trickier uh, calculation of like, is this going to be something I need or is it something that I, you know, can definitely get, get by without? And I think the answer is like, yes and yes. It's really great to have dedicated time in your life where you, your main job is to write. And your main, um, like, focus is on working with other people who are also writing and, like, getting that critique and getting working on your craft and thinking about your craft. I think that's really, really valuable. Um, but I think that you can create those circumstances without paying tuition. So it's just a lot harder. Um, so like, it, like anything in life, if you can pay, it becomes much easier. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, you don't need to. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really true. And it's good. Uh, sort of perspective from like a really honest standpoint um so you heard it here we have a lot of young listeners I've been saying yeah, that in I all mean... of our um in all of our podcast <laughs> episodes but um just in case anyone's like interested like it's good to see like both sides of it and that you don't need it you know you don't need to have an MFA but if yeah. you if you're able to yeah it could be great um it's so, also a great way to just find other writers and mm. like automatically bond with them. And I think yeah. that that's something that, you know, things like SCBWI, uh, things like Twitter, <laughs> that's not what Twitter's for, but uh, <laughs> can replace that. But it can be tricky or hard to get, you know, to build a community organically. And it's much easier to just be shoved into a room with 12 people who mm -hmm. have also decided to spend the next two years really, really working on this. That makes a lot of sense. So. You said that you met um, Danielle and Sona during a mixer and they're at Cake Literary. Um, could you just 
just uh, describe a little bit about what they do uh, for our audience or people who haven't heard of them before or sort of like what a book packager does? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Cake Literary is a book packager, which is, I guess, not a super well publicized thing, um, but kind of a popular thing. It's a, I guess, business, uh, yeah, business and organization that comes up with ideas for books and then matches those ideas with writers. Um, so they are kind of hiring you as like a writer for hire. Um, and then they can either be already attached to a publishing house. So like the publishing house themselves is generating the ideas and finding the writers, or they can be independent like Cake is. And in that case, Cake is then selling the finished manuscripts to the publishers um, and sort of working with the author to promote the book. Um, so it is um, like IP work, um, which I've heard that that can stand for either intellectual property or internal projects. And I'm like, I don't know which one it is <laughs> because we just call it IP everywhere. <laughs> anyway, I, at a book packager, it definitely stands for intellectual property. <laughs> right. Because they have the copyright to the, to the book because yes. they've sort of hired you with that contract. Um, but usually, you know, at least I know every book packager does it a little bit differently. Um, but there's some sort of split with the profits from the book. And yeah, so working with cake cake specifically is a book packager that I think is, tries to be a little less invisible than some of the others. Some of the book packagers try to be very invisible um, because they, they don't, they're really just there to get these stories out. Uh, mm -hmm. Cake is there to get specifically more diverse fantasy, more diverse uh, high concept stories on the shelves. And um, Danielle and Sona who run it are also writing books under the cake imprints themselves. And so I think there's a little bit more cake authors are more likely to be talking about the fact that they worked with cake and um, promoting each other's books and being very like open about that. Whereas I think mm -hmm. some try to be, try to sort of skate under the radar a little more. Yeah. I, I know Alloy has a very invisible like philosophy. Like you, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't even think they have a website anymore, honestly. <laughs> and even when they did, like they didn't list out their editors or their team, it was like, Alloy is like a faceless organization. <laughs> right, right. Um, but Which is like, why there are so many books that you don't realize are, are IP work or are inter uh, either one, either developed by the publishing company or developed by a packager. Yeah. Well, I also feel like uh, there's something to be said about the idea of like how involved a book packager is with the nitty gritty of this storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you know, when you add in diverse identities and own voices, it becomes more of a co-working situation. And like, you're kind of bringing in the person, who, that person is the own voices, not the book packager. Yeah. So the person, the author who's writing it is naturally more involved in the creative process. Um, and I think that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that Cake really embraces that in, in their in their creative yeah, process as well. Absolutely. I don't know a, a, a super, super lot about working with other packaging companies, but from my experience with Cake, it was always very collaborative. Um, the series especially, even the first book, when I, when I kind of signed on to that project, they had a full outline chapter by chapter. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we still kind of sat down and we talked about it in terms of like, so what do you see here? Like what makes sense to you? And I think when I first talked to them about the project, I was pointing out things and I was like, oh, well, maybe we could switch the age of magic learning to 15 um, mm-hmm. in- instead of whatever. I don't know if something else or, oh, well, Caroline, you're describing her as, you know, Caroline Campbell, who is blonde. Um, so my best friend from college was, you know, a blonde girl with whose name was Claire and she was half Costa Rican and not half, but, you know, she was bicultural Costa Rican. Um, and so like, could I do that so that Leo has a fluent Spanish speaker to help her? So she doesn't always have to be checking a dictionary to read mm-hmm. the spell book. Um, and sort of bringing in these ideas or like, I've written to the two thirds mark and I'm realizing that like, some of the stuffs in this cha- some of the stuff in these last chapters I am no longer as interested in. Can I like streamline this or can I cut these things or can I yeah. rearrange these plot points? And every time that I talked to them, they it, the answer was always just like, yeah, of course, or like, sure, do whatever you want <laughs> in a nice way. <laughs> no, yeah, um, I, that makes a lot of sense though because at the end of the day, your name is is the name that's on the front of cover of the book. Right. Yeah. And uh, for the second book, we worked together on the outline. For the third book, um, we also worked together. Wait, I was trying to remember. Yeah, I think for both of the the rest of the series, we worked together on like ideas, um, storylines that I wanted to follow, things that I wanted to happen. And so really, but like especially by the end of that series, it didn't feel like I was, you know, writing someone else's idea anymore. It felt like we were in a collaborative situation and mostly it felt like I was finishing my series. Yeah. And and I think that that's really important for people to realize because I do think sometimes they'll hear IP and they'll be like, oh, you're just writing another person's story or you're writing another person's words. And like um, there is like ghost writing, uh, but I, I feel like that's such a different beast mm-hmm. than IP. Um, and I also do think that um, there's different levels of of control that people have over IP, like when it comes to the franchises like Marvel right. or Star yes. Wars, mm-hmm. it's really There's strict. A lot more I've heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then when it's something that's original IP, like your book, um, it definitely, I, I worked at a book packager for, you know, for when I used to be an editor <laughs> in my past life. <laughs> and my philosophy was definitely always like, if my authors can't be have ownership over the project if they can't be passionate about it, then I didn't do my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I definitely do have an understanding that Sona and Danielle believe the same thing yeah, about their authors. Sure. So I prefer that one. That's just my <laughs> personal opinion. <laughs> I mean, I was really happy with it. It was a good system. Yeah. 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 People, p- people love to invalidate IP as if it's not real work or creative or hard work. And that's just not true. If you think that you're you're a butthead, <laughs> every writer at some point in their life sits down to an outline that was created. I mean, okay, sorry, pantsers don't, I guess, but they sit down to an <laughs> idea. Um, at some point, you sit down to an idea that was crafted by an earlier version of yourself or something, and you have to just sit down and do the work of turning that cool, shiny idea into a book. Um, so, like, the process is the same. Yeah. And also, you know, there's literally IP that exists that's in-house IP where it's like they literally gave a paragraph of an idea to the author they hired and the author makes literally everything else. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I just feel like, well, and first of all, also intellectual property as a legal term, it applies to any written work. So mm-hmm. we just use it. We just use IP the term as like a way to talk about this concept that specifically exists in publishing. That's an offshoot. Sorry, I'm getting on a tangent. But like <laughs> my point is that like IP runs the gamut and I feel like it's a blanket term that doesn't really do justice to all the different things that can exist underneath it. Um, and I literally always forget this, but I did actually do another IP project. <laughs> oh my gosh, every time. Um, it was a very short, um, like condensed version of Frankenstein for young readers for the, the Ghostwriter TV show on Apple+. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so cool. And that was a very different experience because it was, you know, they, they told me like, oh, just write Frankenstein in 8,000 words. <laughs> Which was so fun, by the way, like, because I, you know, I had the whole, I took the summer off and um, from teaching because I was like, okay, I'm going to pay my bills with this instead. And um, I just like read Frankenstein and did like a really fun voicey book report, um, which is like, was kind of a kind of a trip and had this like fun time of deciding what got to stay in and what got to come out and um you know how to like make this story fun for kids but also like less murdery for kids and (laughs) (laughs) but like so at the end of the day and I kind of joke about always forgetting it, it it did come out in April of 2020 so like that was not my fault um my life was busy with a bunch of other things uh huh but, like, also, there maybe didn't have the level of, like, commitment and passion that Love, Sugar, Magic did um, because it was a very different, like, style of what I was doing and I wasn't creating a story and I wasn't necessarily even trying to put myself into it. I was sort of trying to just, you know, hold someone's hand and bring them into this story that I knew and loved. Um, so, yeah, very different IPs, what you were saying, that they, that it runs the whole spectrum of different types of things so um so we were just wondering uh because uh everything that happened with your middle grade um series happened before you had an agent right Mm -hmm. so what was the process like for you um first being sort of like approached or working with a book packager and then having to query at what point in the process did you do that like once you started working with cake like directly before it like just walk us through that whole process. Yeah. Um, so I do feel like I did it all sort of backwards and in funny ways. But basically, I, I signed up with Cake or like I signed the contract with Cake. I didn't have an agent and Cake had an internal agent um, at the time. Uh, they've switched since then, but it was Victoria Marini. And so she was kind of working as my agent in terms of getting that book deal for us and like doing all of that stuff. Um, but she didn't really have any, she didn't touch the contract between me and Cake. And I, since, since that book, I was under NDA and I was working, like that was clearly Cake's book, um, the first Love Sugar Magic book. I didn't really have anything to query with. So I had to wait until I finished a different manuscript. And the manuscript I finished was the book that would eventually be This Is How We Fly, um, my young adult novel that came out this year. No last year I don't know December of 2020 time is fake (laughs) yeah so it took me a while because I I had I had basically gotten this book deal written um just a a 
kind of still very rough draft of the first book and needed to write the second book because it was a two book deal. And so I just had a lot of deadlines with cake and those really took up my time and it was easy to just make sure I was hitting those deadlines and not spend a lot of time working on my next thing, my like outside of cake manuscript because no one was asking for that and there was no time limit on it. So I think overall I started writing the very first Love Sugar Magic book and This Is How We Fly at the same time in 2014 because I was like that semester of grad school I was writing them both Mm -hmm. and I think you know the difference was pretty huge of when I finished them. Um, Love Sugar Magic came out in 2018, but it was finished in like 2016. Oh, and wow. um, This Is How We Fly didn't come out until the very, very, very end of 2020 and wasn't finished until, um, I don't even know, 2018, 2019. Who knows? Time is meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, so when I did finally query it, uh, when I did finally query it, I actually queried Victoria Marini, who was the cake agent. And I queried a couple other people, but I, since I had already worked with Victoria, I felt very comfortable with her. And she liked the book, and she uh, offered to represent me. And we were like, great, excellent, let's do it. We started working together, and I think she said something along the lines of like, okay, so get me revisions, no deadline, because I don't like to pressure my authors. Uh, which I didn't realize at the time, but was like kryptonite for me. Like, I can't work if I don't have a deadline. And so again, it's like some time passed and I was just still hitting my cake deadlines. And during that time, there was one of the many sort of like schmagent reveals that made a lot of people look at their lives and look at their businesses. And one of the things that Victoria looked at was, am I actually doing an ethical thing by representing both cake and a cake author? And she talked with her lawyers and decided, like, maybe not. Like, we, you know, everything is fine. We haven't run into any problems. Everything's good. But if there ever was a problem, I would be in a really weird situation. You would be in a really weird situation. Maybe you should seek other representation, Um, Mm. which I think was cool and thoughtful of her. And so she kind of helped me the same way that, like, when I started querying, Danielle and Sona kind of helped introduce me to some agents, guided me with who to query. Um, she kind of did the same thing and was like, okay, well, if I'm not going to represent you, here's some people that I think might be great fits. And, um, I, that's how I eventually ended up signing with Patricia, who's my current agent, um, Patricia Nelson. And so, oh, yeah, I, her. She's, yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's really great. Um, and even though I didn't, you know, necessarily like want to switch or it wasn't something that happened because I was like, I'm out of here. Uh, I think that uh-huh. having the like little trial run agent worked out well for me just because even though apparently I started researching in eighth grade um, how to get an agent, there was a lot of stuff I just hadn't thought of or didn't realize about an agent-author relationship uh, when I signed with including things like I didn't know that I needed deadlines. And when I talked with Patricia, like on the phone, when we, the, the phone call where she offered representation, I was able to kind of tell her that um, things like communication style, things like I told her that I wanted to write in multiple genres or in multiple, well, yes, in multiple genres and in multi- multiple age ranges. Um, and we had a whole conversation about what does that look like? How do you make that possible? And she was like, it's definitely possible. 
are you a fast writer? And I was like, oh, medium. She was like, okay, then if you're not super, super, super fast, then we're going to have to be very strategic. And like, let's talk about how we will schedule this out. Let's talk about how we will transition from one thing to the next and how we will kind of keep the brands alive while you're going off into other, into other genres or age ranges. So like, that was a cool conversation to be able to have. And yeah, I've been very happy with Patricia. We work, we have worked mostly since um, This Is How We Fly was pretty polished by the time it got to her. Um, she kind of just, we went pretty quickly into submission. So mostly what we've worked on is proposals for new things, um, getting like synopsises written for the my second YA, which is still currently untitled because I'm bad at titles <laughs> and it's really hard to promote it and tell you I'm like the marching band book and everyone's like what <laughs> um, so my my companion novel to this is how we fly which is the quidditch book is going to be the marching band book um so she helped me a lot with the the like writing the synopsis getting that sort of proposal together so that the uh so we could give it to my editor and then now with some new things that I've got hopefully someday going on um we've worked a lot on that so i haven't done a lot of revisions with her i'm realizing as i say this but been very happy working with her that's great and i think that that you know i mean we had a lot of people on the podcast before who had to change agents for one reason or another and i think that like each individual instance is like very unique like because every author is unique every agent is unique um and it was good of, of victoria to kind of be like hey i never thought of this situation but I'm reassessing and completely above board about the communication of being like, it's not something I thought about before, but now that I have thought about it, it's like a kind of a red flag in my mind and had a conversation with you about it. I think that's valid. I mean, we, things come up all the time that we never anticipated. Yeah. And I'm really happy that it was, you know, just kind of a smooth, we were just able to say like, Oh yeah, let's stop this before it becomes a problem. Um, that was a good, I think good, good move. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So for speaking of your YA books, mm-hmm. um, speaking of Quidditch book, um, that's your most recent book. It came out December, 2020. Um, do you mind kind of for everyone, if they haven't heard of it, giving like a quick synopsis of what it's about? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so this is how we fly is a loose Cinderella retelling and I finally figured out what I meant when I say that uh, after reading some reviews that were like, what? It's a what? How? How? Um, <laughs> it's a loose Cinderella retelling, which basically just means that it's about a character who is stuck in a both a home situation and kind of a life situation that she doesn't really, that doesn't really feel right for her. Um, the main character is Ellen Lopez Rourke. She has just graduated from high school and she is spending kind of the last summer before college. Um, and for her, it's just a really bad summer. It's just a really bad time. Her stepmother, who is not like exactly evil, but like kind of, uh, has, she's always clashing with her about kind of like her, her philosophy on life. Ellen is this like very vegan feminist, um, social justice-y kind of person. 
And her stepmother is very like, okay, just like be normal. Don't talk about politics and <laughs> stop. Like everything you're doing, cut it out. Stop it. That's Don't my fa- angry all my, time. my family to me before every Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, very much that, that uh, dynamic. And so Ellen is really just kind of feeling like everything is trapping her. She gets grounded because of doing another like disobedient thing or getting in another fight. Um, she feels very stuck. She doesn't know what life is going to look like in college. And she kind of has all these voices in her head telling her like, oh, well, thank goodness you're able to leave and go to college. And she's like, I don't know what that is going to be. What if it's worse? I don't know. Um, And so it's really a story about her growing up enough to kind of like see her own, see her future and find a place where she fits in. And she does that by joining a Quidditch team. Um, You read it in my bio and I wrote a whole book about it. Quidditch is something that I do in real life. Um, So this is all based on a real life community of people who play Quidditch in the real world, Uh, which is a weird thing to do, but a very fun thing to do. And I think like, like any niche sport or like niche uh, nerd adjacent community, it becomes kind of a very close knit circle of people. Um, I think you see similar things with like the Ren Faire community, although that's a little... um, more theater kids and you see similar things with like the ultimate frisbee community or the roller derby community um so joining a community like this gives ellen the space to kind of grow up have some exciting you know first things and get a better handle on how to like be in control of her life instead of just sort of sitting back and feeling stuck and not knowing what's coming i love that that's uh stuff that a lot of people can relate to. So, so uh, could you talk to us a little bit about like the Quidditch aspect of your book? And like, I know that there must have been some difficulties surrounding that considering like where the inspiration comes from and everything that's happened with the author of that series. Um, was it anything that you had sort of had to like grapple with or uh, just what was it like for you um, to have a book come out that's inspired by something that's like such a so so sort of polarizing now at this point. Yeah. No, yeah, thank you. Um I so it's been a weird journey because at the beginning again, I started writing this book in 2014 and the question that I got and it I still got question that was sort of like, "Whoa, you're writing about Quidditch?" but it was, "Oh, can you legally do that?" And I was like, "I don't know." but we're going to find out. (laughs) I'm going to continue writing about it until somebody stops me and nobody ever stopped me. Um, And I think I, when I waited until the contract was signed with Penguin and then I, on the phone with my agent, when we were celebrating, I was like, Hey, did they say anything about how we got the rights to this? And she went, what? No, they didn't. And I was like, okay, well, it's their problem now. I washed my hands of that. Um, and she was like laughing. She was like, I guess I never thought about it because you just, you you play it. So you wrote about it. I was like, exactly. Okay. Um, so that was a question. And then it wasn't until, I mean, okay, even when I sold the book, I knew that there were some issues with the sort of like some of the new parts of the fandom, mm-hmm. the way that, for example, native um, myths and legends and cultures and beliefs were all being sort of mishmashed together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other, you know, the whole entire Asian school, uh, like <laughs> the whole continent is just being lumped into. Yeah. So I knew that there were issues and I knew that it wasn't a perfect, um, it wasn't a franchise that perfectly lined up with 
my beliefs or even with Ellen's beliefs. Um, and I and I tried to acknowledge that in writing the story because I was really basing a lot of the kind of like the community, the Quidditch players that Ellen meets on the people that I knew. And so the people I knew were having those conversations. And so they had those conversations in the book. And so then when, you know, as the controversy sort of got more and more and as, as the, um, you know, the issues, the questions about trans people came up and became part of the franchise, which like had never been, you know, that was a whole thing. Um, I just made sense in all my revisions to continue adding those discussions in. But um, we got really close to the book release before, and my book even got pushed before that became such a polarizing issue. Mm. Um, so I didn't really expect that. I didn't expect when I was writing and editing and revising this book, I didn't expect to be releasing it in a world where the fandom can seem really actually hostile to trans people. Like that was a really unpleasant surprise. Um, and I think I did a, a very last minute, like past pages revision to make sure that there were certain lines in the book um, and to take out as many references, like, like nostalgic loving references to the fandom as possible to try to um, make sure that that hostility didn't transfer to my book. And I'm not sure it worked. And I am sad about that. I mean, I, like I, there's nothing to do. It, you know, it's done. I still am really, really proud of the, the real life Quidditch community being, um, so Quidditch, if I didn't already say this, I probably forgot, is a, um, all gender full contact sport. It has been since at the very, very beginning of its inception in, I don't know, 2011 or 2010 or something. Um, it's been inclusive of trans players and uh, trans players without any gatekeeping, like what you write down on your form is how we will treat you forever. And if that changes, that changes. And, um, you know, every tournament you explain how you're going to meet the gender requirements because there are requirements um, to have different genders on each team and you explain how you do that and that's it. Um, and I'm really proud of that. And I'm really, really proud of the way the Quidditch community has rallied and has always fought to keep that. Even if we sometimes get people joining saying like, wait, you do what? Wait, you let, you know, people of this body type tackle people of that body type. Wait, but how are we going to ever let, you know, this type of person play if this type of person counts for this part of the gender role. And we try to shut that down. And the leadership has always been very, you know, very like, nope, this is what it is. We're not changing this. This is what the sport is. And if we don't do this, we won't be worth anything. Um, and so I tried to keep that, you know, in the book. The book is not full of all cis characters. Um, Ellen has entire scenes talking about her gender feels, which are kind of... I. I would describe her as like a questioning character. Um, I wouldn't necessarily describe her as a trans character, but I definitely wouldn't describe her as a cis character. Um, labels are interesting. Anyway, so she spends the book kind of questioning her own gender. Uh, and so it, it was very upsetting to release it in kind of this, when, when the world had shifted in this way. Yeah. 
That's got to be oh. so tough. It's like an extreme version of don't meet your heroes. Like it's yeah, like such yeah. an extreme version of that. Um, and it's it's also I always tell people like, hey, if you ever thought about writing actual pop culture into your book, like let me be both the shining beacon of like you can get away with it and the shining warning red flag of like maybe don't. Like, <laughs> I'm both. Yeah, I think it's just so hard because, you know, there, that pain is so real for so many people of like, like the way the, the kind of feeling of betrayal of this, this series and this fandom that, that loves them suddenly not loving them back. I think that like, I don't, I definitely understand and don't fault anyone who doesn't want to read the book anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at the same time, obviously, I want everyone to read my book because I'm an author. Like, <laughs> come on. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's rough. And I mean, I've been very lucky. I know that like, there are readers who have, you know, reached out to me to tell me that they loved the book or that, uh, or haven't reached out to me directly, but have said, this was the book that felt to me like what the fandom needed to kind of like move beyond or kind of to have, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, closure, not closure, but yeah. And then of course, my Quidditch friends have been really nice about reading and telling me, especially during this pandemic, um, didn't know I'd be releasing in a global pandemic either. Uh, <laughs> Which, where contact sports, of course, are no longer a thing. Um, yeah. So a lot of Quidditch fans reaching out and saying, oh my gosh, I miss Quidditch so much. And this was a good nostalgic way to like, if I can't get back on the field, at least I can read about someone learning how to play for the first time, having those, you know, grass stains and bruises and, uh, you know, just all those iconic Quidditch moments. For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Luceli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco and action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabel A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad. Order today at buyghostsquad.com. Um, so you do have, um, you're part of a short story anthology that's coming out this summer called yeah. Up All Night. Uh, it's out July 13th. Can you tell us anything about uh, your story in, the, in, the, in that collection? Yes. Um, <laughs> where to begin? Uh, it's inspired by a, uh, an emotional support dog that I met on an airplane. Oh my god, that's so cute. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's called the story's called When You Bring a Dog to Prom. Um, oh, I already love it. Wait, I, what was the dog's name? Do you remember? I don't remember. No. Um, I have a picture of him that I like look back on. Uh, <laughs> But I don't actually remember his name, but I like, you know, I had like a very short chat with the owner where he was actually sitting like in the aisle that I was in. I'm um, just sort of laying on the ground really nicely. And I was just like, I didn't really know much about like, what are the rules regarding emotional support animals? I kind of honestly still don't because the owner didn't like have like a, you know, she wasn't trying to educate me to write a story. She was just kind of like <laughs> chatting. Um, but I just like thought he was really cute. And uh, Laura Silverman had reached out to me and asked me to write like an up all night story, a story where the characters stay up all night. And I stayed up all night the night of my prom. 
so I knew I wanted to do prom and I knew, I had like, you know, half of a character in mind and I just decided like, oh, I'm just going to slot in this adorable dog that I just met. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then like that ended up being really the whole plot of the story, which is like um, a character who goes to prom in love with her best friend. Her best friend invites this kid with an emotional support dog and then she in kind of like in her angsting and moping about the situation uh, lets the dog loose and they have to chase it and try to find it oh my Uh, gosh that sounds really good yeah i hope so um i enjoyed it and it um is not the quidditch story that's all i have to say (laughs) Um, because i i have an anthology that's coming out later i think in 2022 dot 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 question mark uh which is also with Laura Silverman with for an anthology called Game On, which is all about sports and games. And so I actually wrote a Quidditch story. Um, and so, like, my brain is there because I'm, the edits for that are due. Uh, so I have two anthology short stories coming. <laughs> That's cool. Short stories are hard as heck to write. They're not easy. Um, so anyone who, yeah. who does them, hats off to you. Um, I am lucky to have a really good editor, Laura Silverman, <laughs> who tells me <laughs> how long they need to be and how to make them cool. Um, so, Anna, everyone who is on this podcast tells us their most embarrassing publishing-related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You could do either or. You can do both. It's up to you. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to do embarrassing. I feel like I have lots of embarrassing publishing moments but like most of them are just like you know oh I forgot I didn't know the difference between marketing and publicity on my marketing and publicity call who Um, who among us yeah so like (laughs) you know they're not they're not like good stories Uh, but I do have a story that I uh before my first book came out or right around the time when my first book came out when I was still feeling very uh you know baby author like no I'm a real writer I can do it I was talking to just some, you know, I was like meeting some new acquaintances and somebody said, asked me what I did. And I tested out the like, I'm a writer or like, I'm an author kind of thing. And they were like, oh, like, what does that mean? Or what is, you know, what's, and I told them about Love, Sugar, Magic and it's the series and they're witches and they bake magical cookies. And everyone was like, okay, that sounds cute, whatever. Um, Is it like, you know, they, they asked some version of the question, like, is it a legitimate book? Which is a rude thing to ask. But, like, uh. I get it a lot, you know, and like people phrase it different ways. And some of them are insulting to different other very valid publishing things. You know, they'll be like, oh, like, are you printing it? You're like, are you writing it out by hand yourself? Or they'll ask like, oh, like, is it available for purchase anywhere? And I'm like, yes, it is. It wouldn't be a book if it wasn't available for purchase somewhere. Um, so I got some version of that question and I and I thought that I would brag a little bit like I thought I would show them and I said oh well and I even unfortunately said the words like I'm not not to brag or anything but I just re- received a starred review from Kirkus <laughs> and they were like and what and, is that <laughs> yeah, the crickets, like the crickets the like eyebrows and I was just like <laughs> it's, you can buy it at Barnes and Noble, and they were like, "Okay, cool." So it's a real book, <laughs> which is not how you measure, by the way. But 
you, yeah. you, you, that is so funny because like there are certain things that mean nothing to people outside of the industry. And like to us, it's such a big deal. Star reviews yeah. are one of them. Blurbs are another. <laughs> like, yeah. oh like God, we blurbs. get so worked up about these things. And then like the average reader will be like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yep. I really um, love that. <laughs> Not to brag. <laughs> <laughs> that is the cutest said nothing like this i could have taken that line out it would have been fun nope. that may no but that gives it the extra spice that you needed to make it an excellent story for this moment right now i'm yeah, so happy you said it it's not oh. your fault they're uncultured okay <laughs> it's not your fault <laughs> you're like oh my I do god have one you library don't know what is she was really nice when I got my start review from Kirk. Oh, oh my god! Well, yeah, because oh. librarians do look at that kind of stuff. Yeah. They know what it means, right? But like an yeah. average reader is going to be like, "My head." I was like, "Aha!" I'll really show them. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I love that so much. It's it's my favorite. I'm really glad you shared that. <laughs> um. So, Anna, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show. We had so much fun talking to you. Um, Thanks could, so much for having me. Of course. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet? Yes. You can mostly find me on Twitter. Uh, my six-year-old tutor student once told me the most horrible thing I've ever heard, which was, I Googled you. No! <laughs> You're on Twitter a lot. <laughs> Oh gosh. <laughs> it's, true. Uh, it's true. She shouldn't have said it. Uh, so, Twitter at Anna M is boring. I, yeah, yep. I make no apologies for that. Uh, and you can also find my website, AnnaMariano.com, which is more legitimate. Uh, <laughs> We'll have links to all of those in the show notes, too. Yes. And to all your books so people can buy their prerequisite 20 copies. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. And, like, we're so excited to celebrate more of your books to come. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, yeah, great talking to you all. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.